Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Um, Let me start with this. I had a picture for you. There is a person, uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali. She is a former notable Muslim, and she is now a former atheist. And she recently declared that she has converted to Christianity. You probably, if we turn down the light, we don't need to, but you could see her picture a little better. Some of you may notice her, recognize her. She made big news in the media because her conversion made a huge surprise to many. And actually, this may be picturing a preview of a movement to come of more and more lost people that are finding God, including the high profile among us. And I say that because she had a rationale for confessing Christ. It's very interesting as her Savior. She stated that she converted in part by trying to make sense of the violence and the immorality around us, the moral revolution, and she noticed something, that a truly human culture that treats human beings as the persons, not as things, has to rest upon some conception of the sacred order as set forth in Christianity with its claim that we are all made in the image of God. End quote. In other words, her humanity, her conscience led her to check out whether the existence of God is really true or not and what that means. She saw the light. It's like Isaiah 9 says, a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So why does this all matter? I'm going to tell you why. Because if you don't know God, then you don't know that he is real. Then you don't know who you are and you don't know where you're going. Really, you're not going to have an answer to the four most basic, important questions that you, whether you know it or not, consciously or not, mankind has been answering and trying to answer, questioning for years. You want to know what those four questions are? Very simple. I've mentioned them before. Creation, meaning, morals, and destiny. So those questions are, how did I get here? Why am I here? Why am I the way I am? And where do I go when I die? What's my destiny? So when we enter, hopefully, into this season evangelistically, having conversations during Christmas, and we want to tell it on the mountain, you're sitting down at the dinner table with someone, we need to be ready to answer these questions. We need to have an answer as best as we can. And we're going to begin where everything begins, which is the Word of God, God's creation. In fact, 1 Peter 3 tells us, that apostle said, we are to have an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within us. And we present it with gentleness and respect. And the word there, we are to have a reason The original Greek word for reason is the word we get apologetics from, is the defense of the faith. You are to be able to defend your faith. Tell people, understand why you believe what it is you believe. We've got to have some answers here. 
And so when we're talking about take five to give five in this new series, we want to be able to say in as little as five minutes, maybe more if people will give you more, to say at least five things that are critically important to the meaning of life. Five things that make life worth living because they lead to a personal relationship with God. And the five things are this. Ready? God, man, need, gospel, and faith. God, man, need, gospel, and faith. We're going to unpack those each and every week now, the rest of the month. These are five things we need to be prepared to talk about in order to make a case for the gospel and answer the biggest questions, the biggest needs, the biggest desires that you're ever going to have. And that starts with the reality of God himself. Now, I get it. Some of you are in conversations with people. You share your testimony as a witness, and they acknowledge God's existence. Okay, They would tell you God is real, that a higher power exists. Maybe they use that language. The Muslims could talk about that. They are monotheistic, meaning one God. Uh, a Mormon could argue that, uh, a Jew. But what they lack is the right concept, the right idea of who the one true God really is. So our starting place in the five things that we're going to give to people is talking about God, who he really truly is. And to do that, we're going to go back to the church at Rome here. The Apostle Paul. You might remember we were in chapter 10 last time with the ministry of the sent ones. And we talked about our responsibility is our mandate of the gospel. There's a makeup of the gospel that we need to be able to share. Okay? So we are preaching to the lost folks, we learn there, so that they can hear the message, so that they can truly believe, which means to call on the name of the Lord. So now, in the beginning of the book, Paul's already dealing with an objection. He was getting back then that we get now every day. And the philosophical atheist is going to try to trick you with this one. All right? Here's what they're going to tell you. What about that one illiterate person stuck out in the middle of the third world country with no access to the Bible or to missionaries? You know, there's no set ones. They haven't heard of God. They don't know God. They worship the moon or the stars if they worship anything, and uh, maybe they worship themselves, what about them? Because they can't be held morally responsible, can they, for their destiny and not believing? Well, Paul's going to give an answer to that question in two ways in a text of just two verses. And the conclusion of the argument is really, really profound. That is this. It's good you're sitting down. God does not believe in atheists, and neither should you. They don't exist as far as God's concerned. He says that anyone that rejects him is without excuse. There's no excuses for not believing God is real. Therefore, they will be damned. Without exception. Not even the person who is in the middle of nowhere and doesn't have a Bible. You say, really? Wow, that's heavy. Yup, because we're going to see why, how we can find God, everyone on the planet, all seven and a half plus billion of us can. We're going to find God in our conscience and in creation. 
Look at the conscience part of it in verse 19 of Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That is the dramatic, overarching kind of umbrella argument Paul's making. He's going to extend the creation argument from what we see to what we feel in a moment. He tells the church at Rome, all of us by extension, that's the them, that the truth about God, who he is, why he's right to bring, bring wrath on the godly, ungodly, and the unrighteous in verse 18, it should be obvious to anyone, to everyone. Other translations say God has made his existence clear or self-evident to us all. How does he do that? How is his existence plain and obvious to us all? Because if that's true, there should not be an atheist or an agnostic among us. An atheist, so you know the word, atheist without theos, God. Agnostic is a, prefix, without, gnosis, knowledge, without sure knowledge of God. They're the people that say, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. That's kind of the agnostic, okay? And so what we're going to put them on is the first two out of the four roads to God I've talked about, paths, ways to know God, and they are creation and conscience. And I'm going to set up the creation part to get to the argument of conscience, which we're going to get back to. So let's go to creation now in verse 20. Paul continues, For his invisible attributes, God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, ever since the world was created, people over thousands of years of history have looked at the earth and the sky, its beauty, studied the fine-tuning, the complexity that's in the world and its creatures, and they have concluded that God exists. And the Scripture affirms what's in science. Science affirms Scripture on this from where it all starts, the first verse of the Bible, and God created what? The heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created let me show you a couple of other places where you find this. I love Psalm 19. puts it very plainly, the first two verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So creation, the heavenlies, the elements, are speaking to God's creation. Paul, when he was speaking to the Athenian philosophers, Epicureans, and Stoics at Mars Hill, on, uh, in Greece, and he is presenting the gospel. They, they were agnostics. They weren't sure about God. There was an unknown God that they believed in, okay? And in the book of Acts, chapter 17, give you verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand. He's speaking to people that liked idols, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He does it all, creates it all. 
God's word is telling us plainly here. He's the creator and sustainer of this universe directly by the word of his power and or processes that he puts into place so that when you see design, you conclude what? There's a designer. And if you see something that looks like well-designed architecture, then there probably is a what behind it? An architect, a person, a thinking person. So God's word is telling us plainly that he is the creator and sustainer of everything in the universe, okay? And he's saying it's part of his witness to the world as to who he is. If you flip over a page or so in Acts, or make a note, Acts 14, 17, he says, yet that he did, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So the provision, everything that he gives you is evidence of himself. This is what we call, folks, common grace, what we call general revelation. General revelation. Meaning God has revealed himself generally, to everyone, unbeliever and believer on the planet. So he can be understood at least at a fundamental, a basic level. How do they know that? Because it filters into their conscience. Conscience. You all know what conscience is, don't you? I mean, you can sense it because it is sense. In fact, it's a compound word, conscience, with knowledge. And that's the part of your heart and soul that, that distinguishes between what is morally good and bad, prompting you to do good or prompting you to do bad. We call it the moral compass. I remember back in the day, I used to watch those Warner Brothers cartoons, um, Looney Tunes, I guess they were, and they had uh, sometimes a guy was struggling, a character was struggling with a decision, and he had a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. That's kind of picturing the conscience a little bit. H.L. Uh, Mencken said this about conscience. It is the inner voice that warns us that someone may be looking. I like that one. Or Victor Hugo, he put it this way. Conscience is God present in man. And that's really accurate. That's what we're talking about. Because conscience comes from God and it's in every human being, every image-bearing creature he's ever made. In fact, the atheist has a conscience too. It's like instinct. They have an inner voice of the moral, natural law so that the Gentile is not off the hook for not even having the Old Testament law in their hands because that's what Paul deals with in chapter 2 of Romans. If you go over just a chapter from where we're at, listen to verse 14 and onward. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they obey it, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts, listen, accuse or even excuse them. So that's how it works. That's how it works. If you're a secular humanist, and if you're tied into Darwinian evolution, I got a problem for you that you can't solve. And that's conscience, right? It's that inner radar system they know they have. But you know why it's a big problem for it, for them? 
They can't explain it. They don't know where it comes from. It's immaterial. Conscience cannot be observed in a laboratory. You can't put it under a microscope. But you know it's there. Everybody knows there's certain actions, behaviors, sins that are wrong for all people in all places at all times. And they know it without even being told it's wrong. That system, folks, could not have evolved. Impossible. You know why? Higher animal forms don't have it. Have you ever seen a lion or some chimpanzees? They're racked with guilt because they ate their young. They don't do that. Of course not. Why? Because they have no conscience. It doesn't bother them. They just do what they do in their animal instincts. Even though God wrote the Ten Commandments of stone for the Jews, he wrote it first on their hearts, and he wrote it on your heart. As a child, you know that lying and hurting someone was purposely was wrong on your own without even having been taught that, right? How do you know that? Because you feel guilty about it. You feel guilty about it because you have a conscience that comes from God. So the Lord uses that to reveal himself through the moral law. He even does it with evil, pain, and suffering too. Pastor George talked about that this morning. You know, it was C.S. Lewis who said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So God will even use evil, pain, and suffering through your conscience for you to realize he is who he is and that you'll reach out to him. So, they are without excuse. That's what verse 19 says. In fact, it's the reverse of apologetics and defending the faith. Anapologetos, which is without an apology. The atheist has no defense for this. If he's really being honest with himself, he cannot say, I don't, I don't know if God exists. I'm not sure. God is saying, yes, you do. Yes, you do know. Why won't he admit it then? It's not because there's insufficient evidence for the existence of God. Okay, far from it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Or the resurrection of Jesus. It's really simple, folks. You know why people say God doesn't exist? Because they don't like God. They don't like the idea of there being a God who can be judge over their life. They don't want to be responsible and accountable to him with their life. It's that simple. Jesus said it. John chapter 3. Right after the Lord had said, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whosoever believes would have eternal life, etc. The Lord said in John 3, 19 and 20, this is the judgment. The light, meaning himself and truth, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, here it is, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. People will say they don't believe in the existence of God because they hate God. 
people love their sin more than they love the Savior. The unredeemed know deep down if they acknowledge the one true living God, that has implications on how they're going to live. So what you read throughout the book of Romans, chapter 1, is that they are suppressing, holding down the truth that they know is in their heart. For instance, back in that text, Romans 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, oh, it's presupposing they know God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile or empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The beginning of verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's it. We got to worship somebody. We were made to worship. Atheists know that. But for them, it's like anybody but God. I don't want there to be God. That's why people look for satisfaction. They look for a small G God and love in all the wrong places. They look for it in entertainment, substances, sex, killing themselves at a rate like never before. And if they keep doing that, they're going to burn their conscience. Paul talks about that later in the New Testament. So knowing God is so clear, it's so plain, verse 19 puts it, that he has shown it, he's made it known to them, so they're without excuse. It's like the psalmist wrote, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So God is actually calling that person, you're a fool. You're a fool to say, I don't exist. But people would rather brainwash themselves with the idea that he doesn't exist or macroevolution across species is true so they don't have to honor him and give him thanks. That's their first sin. That's the sin of pride. Now you say, wait a second, pastor. I was taught in my public school that evolution was true and that the Bible has to be false in Genesis 1. And the world is billions and billions of years old. And I got the monkeys in my family tree. They showed me the charts. Remember that progressive thing? Which has since been disproven. Paul dealt with that, by the way, in verse 20, when he talks about his qualities or his attributes. And his deity is clearly perceived or seen. But then hang on. Hang on. There's more, because I'm going to tell you something about natural science or Darwinian evolution on this question of origins, how we got there. You know what science believes? They believe a fairy tale. A fairy tale. You know fairy tales, right? Frog plus a princess equals a handsome prince. That's a, that's a fairy tale, right? Well, they got one too. A frog plus 10 billion years equals a handsome prince, and they call that science. The theory of evolution isn't even scientific at its core because they have no cause for the first effect in history and the origin of life on this planet. The fundamental principle of science is that there has to be a cause, an action, an agent for every effect. But on this question, they actually believe this. Nothing plus time plus chance equals everything. That's absurd. I'm here to tell you that's stupid. It's non-scientific. Yes, this is being recorded. I'm on the record. 
It's, un, it's unscientific. It's amazing, in fact, that millions of people buy that lie. It's nonsensical. I, I think you need blind faith to be an atheist. Darwin himself said this, quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. End quote. Guess what? Since he wrote The Origin of Species, that theory has been broken down. Think about your eye. Think about the cell, the human cell. Think about DNA, that map of all the material and data of who you are. None of that could have evolved over millions of years, little by little, and then survived intact, because it all has to be working together to work. How many of you have heard of William Paley's watchmaker hypothesis? Maybe some of you have. Doris, you have. Paley says that if you find a watch in the middle of some field and you have no idea how it got there by examining it, because it has all these intricate parts that are in it, inside and out, you understand that it couldn't function without it all together. You would understand that the watch had to have been designed. And so it couldn't have just shown up in a field by itself, on its own. The opposite view is the Darwinian evolutionist. He's called God, or this idea, of the blind watchmaker. He says, by chance, by chance, which random chance like luck means absolutely zero. It's nothing. It has no power. It has no person. It can do nothing. But by chance, somehow, piece by piece, the watch was built and working at the same time and just appeared in the field. Is that ridiculous or what? Is it just me? Furthermore, I'll tell you, there's no archaeological evidence either for Darwinism. There is no missing link in the fossil record that animals somehow became human beings. The supposed links, Piltdown Man, Nebraska Man, et cetera, et cetera, that have been found for more than a century have all proven to be a hoax. They were another animal of one kind or another. Wouldn't you think if it existed, that missing link, they would have found it by now with all the science and technology we have? All of it's a scam. It's a cover to hoodwink people into thinking that they're not uniquely made image bearers of God, that were people that were not people, were things. And let me tell you something, that worldview, that philosophy, tell people this, that can be dangerous. It's not just about interesting debates and information here. Personal choices have public consequences. Ben Stein is a noted Jewish writer, and he co-produced a film called Darwinism some years ago. He was quoted as saying this, quote, Darwinism teaches that you, mankind, owe it to the superior race to kill the inferior race. He added, as a Jew, how timely is this, I am horrified that people thought Jews were so inferior they didn't deserve to live. So he's arguing that if you believe in natural selection, macro evolution across species, as the answer to the question about how we got here, then you have to believe in the survival of the fittest, and some people are fitter than others and are therefore superior than others. This is how you get the idea of anti-Semitism we're talking about today. You know Margaret Sanger, who created Planned Parenthood, 
was an anti-Semite? Do you understand that she believed because of her atheistic evolutionary ideas that she thought African Americans and people with certain disabilities and issues should be murdered in the womb? That's how we got abortion. Plain and simple. So it's not just, well, I don't believe in God and leave it at that. This is a humongous deal. Massive. And it extends out. Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She said this. I'm not making this up. I wish I had. There is no rational basis, she said, for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig is a boy. And she once compared the Holocaust with killing animals for food. I mean it. She told a news reporter in Washington, quote, six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six million broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. That's nuts. I mean, she's Looney Tunes. Because she hates God. And she can't admit who human beings are created in the image of God. And this goes on and on with tyrants. You may know some of the names. Hitler, Stalin... Mao in China, more recently, Bin Laden. They murdered millions of innocent human beings having either rejected the existence of God or rejecting the one true God found in his word. And then some atheists actually think, so again, all of this came from nothing. Others believe in a big bang that started the universe with an explosion billions of years ago. And it came from elements, a primordial soup that was existing in some kind of atmosphere. You want to see a cool reaction? Ask them one of these days when you're talking about God. Ask them, where did the stuff, where did the soup come from? And you're going to get, uh, how about them dolphins? Uh, change the subject. They have no clue. They can't answer the question. Or, where did the energy come from that caused the explosion? They don't know. Look for their reaction. Get something. Natural science cannot explain the supernatural. Does that make sense? It has nothing to do to teach us or tell us about God or the creation of life. You know why? Because the creation of life on our planet happened as a one-time only event, a historical event, and it's unreproducible. The earth is not going to be recreated like that again. So science has nothing to offer us, really, on the question. God did it because he can do it and because he did it. I love the language, the way it's put in the book of Isaiah. I want to look at Isaiah, the 45th chapter. I think we have it up on the screen. And that prophet quoting God is just very clear. Isaiah 45, 6. We just went through this in our BRP this past week. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes. God does it. I am the Lord who does all these things. And you flip over to chapter 46, when he's speaking to like a skeptic, he goes on. 
46.8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That's a fancy way of God saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And it's going to get done. Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. It's coming back. So church, the first thing out of five things to give people or to say in just a few minutes is God. You got to talk about your all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, sovereign, holy, just, righteous, loving, merciful creator, God. Tell people, look up, look around, that's creation, look in your heart, that's conscience, Ask them, what do you see? What do you feel? Their reaction, according to Romans 1, is to honor, their reaction is to be to honor and give God thanks. Job did it in his suffering. The psalmist does it beautifully. I won't go there in the interest of time. Psalm 104. Just read all of Psalm 104, more of that Isaiah language. The Bible just makes it pretty clear as to how we got here and who made it all and the rules and who reigns over it. And so he is to be glorified and thanked for that. You see, the unbeliever can and does feel that God is real and is therefore without excuse. So what does he in his unredeemed heart do is suppress the truth. And as we've often said, I want to tell you this. You're no one's Holy Spirit. You're not going to change somebody's heart. Only God can. But as the sent ones, as we talked about last time, we're commanded and therefore responsible to understand this issue, answer some questions, take the message of God, man, the need, salvation, gospel, faith, to the lost, and let the Lord do what he's going to do. Put them on the path, hopefully. So I close by... I'm just putting this all together for you. When you take five to give five, there's a school teacher in England told a story at Christmas time when she supervised the uh, construction of a manger and uh, it was in the corner of the classroom and the children all worked together on the project and they also had fun casting the characters for the nativity and all of that. And the teacher noticed this one boy was really into it, what was going on, and he kept going back and forth to the scene. And at last, she asked him, she asked him if there was anything bothering him. He said, no. And she said, are there any questions then you'd like to ask? And he said, yes. What I'd like to know is where does God fit in? And you see, that's the takeaway here. We have made a great case from creation, conscience, not even going to communication yet, the Scripture, and the person of Christ, that God is real, and no one has an excuse for denying it. We've made that case. So what do we do with that? Right? Aside from take five, there's something else you can take. If you're a Christian, take comfort in the fact he's your good, good father. And that's big in the midst of all the craziness that's going on around us, that you have a perfect father. 
He is the perfect provider, protector, because he made everything and controls it all. And second, takeaway, is because he's a good and loving God, he has provided a way and a path for us, fallen in sin, to find our way back to him, to be reconciled by offering up himself in the person of his son, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. God is so loving that, as I mentioned last night, when we had a word for a moment, we talked about Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated, showed his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the great news of the gospel. He's always here. He's always with us. The opportunity is there for everybody. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 